0: And now it's time for us to look into God's word together. For the last 45 years, I have enjoyed an awesome and wholly undeserved privilege. The privilege of preaching and teaching God's living, liberating, eternal truth. And doing so has convinced me that the Apostle Paul nailed it. He was spot on when he said all scripture is profitable. I have discovered life transforming truth tucked inside biblical passages that at first glance appear to be nothing more than historical filler. And I have Discovered liberating truth inside biblical passages that at first glance appear to make God look very, very bad. The passage we're going to study today, Genesis 22, is an example of the latter. At first glance, it appears to portray God as a harsh, unfeeling control freak devoid of empathy, an insecure deity who feels a need to test even his most devoted followers by asking them to do something unthinkable. And that's why efforts to interpret Genesis 22 that don't take into consideration the insights offered by the Holy Spirit well, they invariably go off the rails. For example, some have suggested that this story demonstrates how God matured over time, how he evolved from the stern, demanding deity of the old covenant to the gracious, accepting Jesus of the new. Others, and you can't make this up, I actually believe this story was intended as a parable of male dominance in the world. All such interpretations reveal a tragic ignorance of two things, God's character and God's word, the sacred scriptures. And I say that because the Bible is its own best interpreter. When a passage appears to contradict the prevailing narrative and message of Scripture, God always offers a clarification somewhere else inside Scripture. And the Holy Spirit helps us to locate that clarification and hear it, providing we have ears to hear rather than fears and idolatries to protect. Now, Genesis 22 is a narrative that begs for clarification, so the Spirit provided it. He made it clear that the story that initially appears to cast God in a negative light actually highlights God's incredible love. Love that accepts us as we are but cares too much to allow us to stay that way. Love that won't allow our degrading idolatries and destructive habits to go unchallenged. Love that desires to liberate us rather than control us. Love willing to secure our freedom and our transformation through incredible sacrifice. Now, with that, I want you to listen to the story's rather uncomfortable opening lines, and then we're going to read God's subsequent comforting clarification. First of all, Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2. Now, it came about after these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. God said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. And the clarification found in the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him, that is Isaac, received him back as a type or a symbol. I've entitled this weekend's teaching, The Tests of Love. Please join your hearts with mine in prayer. Father, when we read chapter 22, we are standing on particularly holy ground. Because we know it is a symbolic representation of the sacrifice of Jesus made by our creator who loved the world. Father, today as we seek to show some of the practical implications of this story for our own lives, for our own seasons of testing, I pray that your spirit would guide my words and my thoughts And I pray that your spirit would guide and empower our responses. As always, we pray these things for the welfare of your people, for the sake of our mission in the world, and for your honor and glory among men. And we pray these things with confidence in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we listen for God's voice together today... Wherever you are, may the Lord be with you. Today we're walking through a narrative any caring person, any thinking person, would struggle to understand. And as we do, I want to highlight some words and phrases that again appear to be little more than factual filler or historical footnotes. But don't be fooled. Like tiny keys that open large doors, these phrases are essential to hearing what God has to say about a topic of great interest to every follower of Jesus. Namely, why does God test his people? And why does he often test us in rather unusual ways, like asking a man, to sacrifice his only son after waiting for him for decades. In the past 45 years, I have had numerous pastoral conversations on this topic. And let me share with you that those conversations tend to be rather emotional, if not initially, after we're into them for a bit. And the range of emotions I have found runs the gamut from unsettling ambiguity to slow, simmering anger and finally to suffocating apathy. And that's predictable. Because when we don't know what God's up to, when we feel like we're in the dark... That frustrates us, and unrelenting frustration always produces anger. We're seeing that during this pandemic. Then, because sustained anger drains us, it demands so much of us, we settle into a soul-numbing indifference or apathy that eventually becomes little more than unbelief on the installment plan. And trust me, I've seen that. You don't want to go there. So permit me to suggest a scriptural answer based on this story that answers the question, why does God test his people? And I want to begin with this. God doesn't test his people to discover what's in their heart. He already knows that. He tests us so we can discover what is in our hearts. And we desperately, desperately need his assistance in that process. For as Jeremiah seventeen nine reminds us, our hearts are deceitful. We have this nasty habit of lying to ourselves, of selling ourselves a bill of goods where spiritual realities are concerned. And we pay a high, stiff price with penalty and interest for indulging that habit. Because God can't fix, God can't fix what we refuse to acknowledge. We can't obey the repeated biblical commands to put off the old and put on the new, given to God's people, if we are blind to the presence of the old or if we refuse to acknowledge the reality of the old upon us. Restoration begins with recognition. Let me say that again. Restoration begins with recognition. And recognition requires judgment, day, Honesty. No smoke, no mirrors, no deflections, no denials, no half truths. Judgment Day honesty. And Judgment Day honesty often requires a test. An unwelcomed, uninvited, but necessary and God initiated intrusion or disruption of our spiritual status quo. Like it or not, we need tests to discern our surviving spiritual strongholds. The walls constructed of lies that keep God out and keep us imprisoned. That's the definition of a stronghold that Paul speaks of. It's a prison made of thoughts and lies. We need God's help to discern our idolatries, our misdirected loves and loyalties, our misplaced confidences, our unacceptable unions of God and something other than God, and the stubborn fears that create and sustain spiritual vulnerability in our lives. Now, despite his exemplary faith, and the fact he was referred to as the father of faith, Abraham was still playing host to some strongholds. And the opening line of the story makes that clear. In the kind of words we tend to blow past, but actually indicate cause and effect, the story opens by saying, after these things, God tested Abraham. What things? What things was the writer referring to? I would suggest the things that preceded chapter 22. Abraham's repeated lies and deceptions where his wife Sarah was concerned. Abraham's doubt and impatience that led to Ishmael, domestic strife and international strife. And finally, the birth of Isaac, God's intended heir. Isaac's future assignment as one of the patriarchs of Israel would require training, training in un compromised faith but Isaac's instructor would be his dad Abraham and Abraham's faith was still somewhat compromised and in matters of faith you can't lead people where you yourself have never been so there were things Abraham needed to put off now Abraham loved God but It appears he feared that God wasn't up to protecting other things that he loved, namely his wife Sarah and the future that God had promised to him. And God knew if that fear was left unresolved, it would attach itself to Isaac and poison Isaac's training. And few things are more faith-diluting than fear. Few things dilute our faith more than fear. That's why Abraham's stubborn stronghold had to be recognized and then dismantled. And as I noted earlier, that process begins with recognition. So God tested Abraham. Why? To liberate Abraham. And it shows that the God who doesn't abandon us because of our sin won't abandon us to our sin. His tests testify to his faithfulness. They indicate he's serious about liberating us from everything that would diminish us, imprison us, and negatively impact others and future generations. Now, past events... After these things, also revealed another problem, one that God recognized, but Abraham apparently did not. We are tempted to turn God's good gifts into idols and then protect the gift rather than trust the giver of the gift, God Himself. Abraham had done that with Sarah. And Abraham would have likely done it with Isaac. So again, change was necessary. Hence, the test. Now the next revealing phrase that you could blow by quickly is found in verse 3. Immediately after receiving the instructions that must have left him in total shock, we read that Abraham... Rose early and set off. Now, given his instructions, I'd like to suggest Abraham recognized if he delayed, he would probably never act. And he was right, because delay is the great enemy of obedience. I suspect more unresolved strongholds have their roots and their continued existence in procrastination rather than outright rebellion against God. We tell ourselves we'll obey later. But things that are hard to obey at first hearing never become easier with the second hearing, the third hearing, with time or with repetition. They become harder. And here's why. Delayed obedience is just disobedience in bite-size chunks. And prolonged disobedience quenches the holy spirit necessary necessary for obedience. When you delay, you cut yourself off at the ankles. Now, verse 3 states that Abraham went to the place God designated. Don't blow past that. It's also important because for a whole host of reasons, the freedom God desires for us is only found in the place God designates. In the actions he designates, with the people he designates, at the time he designates, involving circumstances that he designates. Because only God knows the exact nature of our problem. And when he gives us instructions, he is neither deceived nor is he compromised. We are both. That's why we need the instructions. And because we're deceived, because we're compromised, when God speaks about a matter, we are in no position to dictate the terms of our liberation. You must meet God where he tells you, because it won't happen anywhere else. Well, if you've read the chapter, and I hope you have, you know how the story ends. When Abraham went immediately To where he was told to go, to do what he was told to do, God spoke. God called a halt to the proceedings. He directed Abraham's eyes to a ram caught in the bush, one that would serve as a substitute for Isaac, just as Jesus, the Lamb of God, would later serve as a substitute for us. Abraham had passed his test. His stubborn strongholds had been recognized, and he had put them off in a decisive act of obedience. We tend, we tend to look for God's voice and look for God's provision on the wrong side of obedience. What do I mean? We tend to look for God's voice and God's provision on the front side of obedience. We tell ourselves we'll obey once we hear God and once we see God's provision. But the reality is opposite. In order to hear God's voice, in order to see God's provision in the thicket, we need eyes to see, we need ears to hear, and those things only emerge on the back side of obedience. And here's why. Obedience opens our ears and our eyes, while disobedience renders us spiritually blind and deaf. Those are the ripple effects of sustained disobedience. God can be right in front of you. And you can't see him. God can be speaking. You can't hear him. Ask the Pharisees, ask the Sadducees how that works. Abraham called the place of his wonderful discovery, quote, the Lord will provide, end quote. The man who had repeatedly doubted God would provide for his wife, and God would provide an heir through his wife, had now been liberated from his nagging doubt. Because the central issue of the test had never been God's total control. The central issue of the test had been Abraham's total liberty. Because God's always in control whether we obey or not but we're never free until we obey. The Hebrew narrative that I read at the outset indicates that Abraham was confident as he went to that mount that God, if necessary, would raise Isaac from the dead. Now, where did he get that idea? Abraham had never seen a resurrection. Abraham had never heard of a resurrection. And God hadn't suggested the possibility of a resurrection. So where did Abraham get the idea that if he had to go through with the sacrifice of Isaac, God would raise Isaac up in miraculous fashion? I'd like to suggest Abraham came to that conviction because he did have the conviction that God keeps his promises. And God had promised it would be through Isaac that the great nation would emerge. And that couldn't happen if Isaac were six feet under. It reminds us that faith and obedience are ultimately based on God's character and our confidence in God's character, not in God's explanations. Because there are many things God doesn't explain, many things God won't explain, many things we wouldn't wouldn't grasp if he did explain them. Genesis 22 not only records a symbolic portrayal of God sacrificing his son as the lamb for the sins of the world. But it also records a watershed moment in Abraham's life. But it does even more than that. It establishes a template for the necessary watershed moments in our lives. It reminds us God tests those he loves. Not to control them, but to liberate them. Not for his benefit, but for their benefit. It reminds us that God's tests sometimes involve instructions that initially appear to ensure heartache and loss. But loss is good if it means losing those things that need to be lost and gaining those things that cannot be lost and that we would be lost without. God tests us for our sakes, not his. He wants us to learn that we are never more free and never more truly ourselves than when we choose to surrender to him. At the outset, I mentioned I wanted to answer two questions. Why does God test his people? And the second, why does he sometimes do it in highly unusual ways? Now, I recognize I haven't answered the second question, but I want to answer it in closing. And you can relax. I'm going to answer it in one sentence. God sometimes tests us in unusual ways, precisely because the usual ways haven't worked. Because his less traumatic appeals to us have gone ignored. Because his previous interventions have been missed. God generally works more in the usual than in the unusual. But if we reject the usual, he'll do the unusual because of his commitment to liberate us. His tests are the tests of love. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, to walk through life as a Jesus follower is to encounter a host of tests, uninvited and sometimes unwelcomed intrusions and disruptions ordered by your loving heart on our behalf. When those moments come, rather than whining about our circumstance, rather than questioning your goodness, rather than digging in and doubling down, Lord, help us to remember the story of Genesis 22. And recognize that our test means we're on the threshold of the next layer of liberation. And once we step over that threshold and breathe in that liberation, we'll be so glad we did. Help us to obey when we don't understand, trust when we don't see, listen when we don't like what we're hearing. Help us to pass the tests of your love, meant to liberate us, not control us. In Jesus' name. Let me simply say in closing, this pandemic is a time when god i believe is testing his church inside this nation state and as i listen and as i observe it appears many folks rather than passing their tests are doubling down on their strongholds defending their fears defending their bigotries defending their indifference defending their misplaced confidences Defending their overly politicized faith, defending their ungodly unions of patriotism and scripture. Don't double down on your stronghold during these days. Instead, get before God and pray the prayer of David Search me, O Lord. I'm too prone to lie to myself. Search me, O God. And see if there be any inappropriate way within me. Pray that prayer. You'll pass the test. God bless you.